Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We're here today with Vitaly Katzenelson, CEO of a well-known investment firm in Colorado and author. Vitaly is Russian-born, American by choice, and writes a newsletter that combines life, investing, classical music, just about anything, you name it, that's very, very popular out there. He also has a special section about Ukraine because he has a lot of contacts and friends over there and receives a lot of information about Ukraine. He's very knowledgeable on it. I'm hoping he can fill us in on why Putin started this war, what the Ukrainian people are doing about it, and what the future looks like to them. First of all, Vitaly, I want, I want you to know there's a tremendous amount of support for Ukraine's bid for freedom. Absolutely. It's good to have you with us today. In light of current events, how do you see the timing of this invasion? Why now? I was born in Russia. However, uh, three quarters of my ancestors are from Belarus, and one quarter are from Ukraine. So even though, in, in all honesty, I've never been to Ukraine or Belarus, you know, in my life. So when I grew up, so there are a couple of things I need to I need to add some context to this war. So when I grew up in Soviet Union, we were all Russians, meaning that. And and I and I don't mean it in a in like the way I say it now it sounds horrible actually because you know but at the time we were basically kind of all the same like you know they I had a lot of friends who came from Ukraine but I would not even know that because we had we shared the same language same same culture uh, I I could not even today I have friends in the United States who are and I say Russian uh, as I discover I keep discovering a lot of them came from different parts of Soviet Union but it's just um, it was a, like one big melting pot. And so when this war started, I was shocked because it's this is like a cousin fighting cousin without real provocation. And it's a and it's a one cousin turning Nazi on another cousin. It's that's 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 how I see this. Um, why did this war start and and, and the timing? Well, so my thinking on this has changed a lot. I used to think, or at least think that this is what Russians thought, that um, uh, you, you know the, that the Russia looks at NATO as a threat, and therefore, as Ukraine uh, goes more towards the West, then it's a it's become strategic threat to Russia, and you know, and and Ukraine obviously uh, joining NATO. So suddenly you have a NATO on Russian borders, and you know, one of the biggest borders it has. Um, that's what I used to think, and I then I realized I was completely wrong about this, because that was an excuse, a cover story, because if you think about NATO. Until this war, it was basically a sclerotic organization because it didn't have a purpose, right? Because its purpose was to fight, to basically a defensive alliance, underline this, defensive alliance that was there to protect countries in Europe and the United States from Russia. But I want to think about Europe, and you know, we usually don't think about it this way, but United States is a 50 little countries which is you know kind of become one country. Why? Well, you look at Europe; it's actually a lot of little countries that are actually their own countries. Um, so that allow that. So if uh, if Russia decided to invade 
uh, Estonia or Poland, etc., probably on their own, on its own, Poland probably would not be able to defend itself as a whole. You know, and so therefore Russia could, in theory, defend each one country at a time, and that's how the Europe would, would be conquered. And that's exactly what happened in past wars, by the way. Uh, now, by having this alliance, if you attack on one, you attack on all, that's basically the feature, the Article 5, which is the feature of this alliance. Basically, that protects Europe from Russian invasion. The problem is, like, Europe wasn't really thinking about it for a long, long time. They didn't, Europe did not look at Russia from a negative perspective. It was just another country, just, just like Germany doesn't think about much about Poland or France or other countries invading them, etc. They just, people want to go about their day and just go to Starbucks and buy a cappuccino, whatever. So what's interesting is that, in fact, if you look at the NATO def- you know, uh, defense budgets of European countries, they all, all these countries spend less than NATO charter dictated they should spend. Uh, so NATO was not really a threat to Russia. United States did not, and the Russians get upset about this, United States, because they feel, they feel like they're insulted. But United States did not look at Russia as a threat. Because the United States has a bigger fish you know, to worry about, which is China, which is unlike Russia that has been shrinking as a country just because its population was shrinking because the uh, uh, mortality rates are so, is so high. China is actually growing and getting stronger. So we focus on, the, on the, really on China, not United States. So Putin basically, and he said this before, he wants to bring the Soviet Union back. And he also never looked, I guess, and especially you can see this now, he never really looked at Ukraine as an independent country. He just looks at the, like he basically looks at it as it belongs to Russia. And he wants to bring the like he wants to bring the Soviet Union back together, and uh, Ukraine is the kind of is you know is the is the first step. Um, Not an easy step, obviously. Yeah. Uh, what assets are there in Ukraine that he really wants to get his hands on? Yeah, but that's the thing. I'm not even sure it's it's the really economic. I'm not even sure it's. I mean, there's plenty of assets. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not sure it's even motivated by that. So, but let me tell you why it's happening now. So in 2014, when he basically invaded, you know, he took over Crimea, mm-hmm. when he, um, where in 20, I forget the year, but in 2010, I think, or uh, if, if it was, yeah, in 2010, when he had excursion in Georgia, the world did not really say anything. You know, there was some, there was some kind of toothless sanctions, but the, the world basically said, if you want to do it, fine. Uh, but Putin at the time, at least was smart enough to have a cover-up story so the West would have an excuse not to do anything. This time around, this was at like, an, like an invasion, like, and you called it right, just a pure invasion of one country by another. There was no cover story. There was, I mean, well, there was a... Um, Oh, he's going to he's going to free Ukraine from neo Nazis. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was going to say. And, and NATO has been a, NATO has been attacking his borders, and he has to defend himself. So he's going to take all of Ukraine away, just to keep NATO on its heels. I mean, yes. how many but stories they, can this guy put out, and Russians believe it? Yeah. So, but the, 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 there's a very important point. The story was really these stories are directed towards Russians, not towards the West. Because he knows the West would not buy those stories, uh, so that that's that's my point. And so what happened this time around? 
the invasion was such a blunt in your face that several things happened. First of all, in the beginning, so Ukraine actually, Ukrainians responded with so much bravery this time. And I, and I want to point something out. If Putin did this, did this in 2010, I would argue, I mean, I'm sorry, in 2014, you know, he probably would have marched to Kiev and uh, the whole Ukraine would be speaking only Russian right now. However, after 2014, Putin helped to create or cement, maybe cement, Ukrainian identity as a nation. Be you know, so that war of 2014, basically Ukrainians now like got more united as a nation, as a nation. So therefore, their response was much stronger. Now, they happened to have a phenomenal president who did not flee to Poland or United States, but uh, said, you know, instead of giving me a ride, give me bullets. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, give me a weapon, give me weapons. So I think they have a, a, they have a president who happened to be at the right place at the right time. You know, I'm not sure what the response would have been on the previous presidents, but this one we know united the country. And, you know, and so the Ukrainians put up a huge fight. Now, that's point number one. Point number two, I think the uh, Russian army proved to be a lot, like I think Putin was looking, either he had bad intel or he's in the bubble or combination of all these things. And he was basically was looking for Ukraine to surrender overnight. And maybe he, maybe he did this based on, you know, his thinking was based on past experiences. Like, you know, like, like in Crimea, right? There was not a single shot fired. But that was a different story. Um, and so Russian army was not prepared and they got in the first you know, few months you know, of the war, they got completely annihilated by Ukrainians. And so Germany, I mean, see, if you look, now you look at Europe and Europe looks at uh, what happened. First of all, Ukrainians are fighting. And now they also look that Russian army is not as scary as everybody thought. And number three, this is important too, is that they realize Oh, they may be like the other parts of Europe may be next. And by the way, the war in Europe is unthinkable. Like, just if you think about the whole idea of having a European Union, like I'm talking about the uh, uh, economic organization to prevent future wars in Europe. These countries went through incredible sacrifice and a lot of, you know, added a lot more layers of bureaucracy just to prevent future wars. And Putin just broke that. So, so that's basically, you know, kind of that kind of explains why the war started and why we see the response from United States and Europe we see today. Two questions for you. One, based on your opinion, how well united are Ukrainians? How many are pro-Russia and how many are pro-Ukraine? Just based on what your knowledge of the situation is. Yeah, so the, it's kind of interesting. The, so the like. Let me tell you this based on, again, let me give you one uh, interesting statistic. So the Kharkiv, which is a city, like like the closest city to Russian border, the Russians there, like the, what you would call the, uh, what maybe in 2014 would have been pro-Russian Russians, were fighting against the Russian forces as hard as Ukrainians did. So the, the, this was a surprise to Putin and, you know, you know to, to large degree. So no, people did not welcome them with the, you know, with the, in Russian it would be called bread and bread and salt. 
like you know, uh, so they did you know, did not welcome the you know, so those Russians did not welcome him, uh, Russian army because uh, I, I think he, you know, Putin has created this identity uh, of were there were some of the people you know, welcoming Russians? I'm sure, but those were minorities. We'll return with a Ukraine perspective. Our interview with Vitaly Katsunelson right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our show. I'd like you to take a few minutes to explain how you were basically brainwashed growing up yeah. in the Soviet Union, under, in Soviet Russia, and, and how that continues today in terms of how they treat their people. I know that uh, Putin is tightening down on the media because mm -hmm. he's feeling threatened. Their economy, the value of the ruble is dropping. Their economy is starting to fail. Their army uh, has shown numerous signs of being beaten. Uh, their people are, their mothers are losing their sons. Their people are becoming disenfranchised, but he's tightening down. Anybody who speaks up is being shipped into oblivion, probably killed or, or sent to uh, concentration camps. And he's been tightening down on the media in terms of what news can actually get out to Russian citizens. Yeah. Explain how you grew up with that and, and, uh, and how it continues today. Great question. So when I was growing up, basically we had a one TV channel. You know, like like United States had three or four, right? You know, ABC, ABC you know, CBS, NBC, we had one. Um, except all the news we got from this channel came basically from Moscow, right? Um, newspapers, we had a few newspapers again. Newspapers came from Moscow, and we were we were brainwashed. We were basically told what we should be thinking. So it's a um, and the amount of information we had from outside world was very limited. Um, so I like I grew up hating Americans because and also by the way the movies that were made and as a kid you probably get exposed more to you know more, more through movies. Americans were this heartless. Uh, selfish, uh, greedy capitalists that would poison kids, kind of thing. You know, this. No, this is the perception uh, we had uh, uh, when I was growing up. Now, when I moved to United States, especially with internet, I th I thought, well, you can't do this anymore, right? You you, you know, now first of all, there's hundreds of channels now, and uh, there's internet. You can read news from anywhere. Now, but what happened is this: so the over time, Putin basically, the, uh, the Russian government took control of all TV stations. So today, all the TV, all the TV, all the news come from the TV uh, that, that you see on TV basically comes from Kremlin. It's a direct link. It's, you know, it's basically you're watching Kremlin news. Now, same thing with newspapers. And that, so there are, there used to be a few opposing newspapers and, and radio, uh, radio stations, they were gone. Uh, now they're gone, but even before then, even before this war, even when they when they had a post newspaper, you know, uh, they, when they had a position, when I took a marketing class uh, at CU Denver, now um, I was taught that uh, for you to remember a message, you have to hear it at least six times. This was 20 plus years ago, so now maybe it has you have to hear it 30 times. I don't I don't know what the number is now. Because there are, you know, there's so much more information we're getting now. However, if you are, if you work all day long, you come to, you come home. What you do, you turn on TV, and on TV you see 
putting this hardworking, almost like a Marvel kind of hero, shortlist hero on the horse or hockey playing. A, modern, yeah, I don't know a modern Peter the Great. Yes. Uh, yeah, by the way, that's that's how he imagines himself, yes. Who basically is thinking about the health of the country. And like you can see them, like um, now you see him sitting in front of these big tables, etc. But the, before this, you would see him sitting sitting right next to the, right next to uh, a minister of agriculture or something and telling him how important the agriculture is for Russia and how, and his staff on that minister. And you know, and you know, that's all faked. You know, it's all, you know, they just had vodka before this and, you know, and and hookers. I don't know, but whatever. But is, they, is it true <laughs> Putin wrestles alligators too? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, he, like, yeah, he's like, you know, he, he, I'm sure he does everything. Um, but anyway, um, I'm sure he works on the water as well. But the, the point I want to make is that if you watch this TV long enough, the message you get that this person is really looking out for the uh, for the best interests of the country. What's also important to understand over the last twenty, like when I left Russia in 1991, it was basically turning into a democracy. And when Putin was elected, you can argue it was a democracy. I mean, in democracies, it's a kind of limited. It's a it's it's a spectrum. But I would argue it was a democracy, uh, still, you know, still, still being in the spectrum of a democracy. But Russians have this flaw. They fall in love with their leaders. They, they just love them. Americans, like Americans, we love to criticize and, you know, criticize, you know, and hate our leaders. Russians love them to death. So over time, Putin asked for a little bit more power. And, and every single time they gave it to him. Um, so when he got elected, you had uh, the governors of each uh, of which area were elected locally. He started, you know, he asked for the power to appoint them. So that happened. Then over time, he asked for the terms uh, to be not for every four years for the president, but every six years. So they did this, and it's, there's a lot more things like like this that I, I don't I'm not even aware of. But today he basically got to the point where he has an absolute power. Okay, and as we know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so now he's ruling the country, and this is very important to understand. And by the way, until this war happened, I did not even understand the power. The, you would think you don't realize how important the propaganda as a weapon because you can complete power and you you can basically tell people what to think through the propaganda machine. Exactly. Okay. It goes and on so, here in the States as well. I'm just not going to conflate it to the point where it's reached in the Soviet Union, but it happens here in our news media as well. And the, and the yeah. government in power uses the media to do just the same thing. The difference being that if you complain... They're not going to send us to a gulag. So I want to push because I think this this point is extremely important. And after what happened in Russia, and I've been thinking a lot about this, I realized the importance of free press. I didn't I did not realize I kind of knew this, but now I appreciate it on so much different level. So in Russia, basically the government tells the news. It's, it's think about it if if you're a company, if you're a company and you're preparing the financials, and instead of having an outside accounting firm confirming them, you own the accounting firm as well, and therefore the accounting firm will sign off on anything, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this is what 
basically happened in Russia. There is absolutely no second opinion, and it's only one version of truth. What is life like now for Ukrainians who are now caught in the captured area, areas that yeah. Russia has taken over? What's yeah. life like for them? Yeah, I, I, I read a few stories on this. And some, and, and when, you, when you read this information, you got to be careful that, like, each side has a bias. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so, but I think the story I read came from Al Jazeera. So I figure Al Jazeera would be, <laughs> <laughs> they would probably, in, in this situation, they would be an unbiased observer. But basically what happens is that when uh, Russia captures this territory, it basically creates its own border which only goes towards Russia. And you, so if you, if you know, you can't go back to Ukraine. Um, they go into schools, rip out the Ukrainian uh, curriculum, and they're trying to basically turn this Ukrainians, do you, you, I don't know if there's a word, you try to do you, do you cry, I don't know. You, they basically- Russianize them. They try to rationalize them, yeah. Uh, they, yes, they, you know, they try to rationalize them. And, uh, they turn a ruble into a functional currency, so you can't use a Ukrainian currency anymore. Mm. And uh, and as I understand, there's a lot of a lawlessness going on. It's a basically yeah. it's a it's a, it's a kind of it, at that point it becomes you become a second uh, class citizen, and there's a lot of lawlessness going on. You know, a lot of uh, things that you know that you know the so Ukrainians are not really. I wrote this article. I wrote an article about this. Ukrainian today are not fighting for the land. It's not. It's not about the land. You know, they are really fighting for their freedom. Yeah. They are fighting for the fact that they used to live in democracy, and if the, if it becomes Russian, it's going to become kind of a Stalin-like state. They are fighting for the fact that if they want to speak Ukrainian, they can. They are fighting for the fact that they want to own the history. They don't want somebody else to rewrite the history. I have the saying is that the history is not written by the guy with the pen, but the guy with the gun, hold, you know, the guy who holds the gun to the guy with the pen, yeah. writing the history. Good point. So, so they're writing for, for their identity. And this is why Ukrainians are fighting so hard. This is why I was outraged by when I think Macron suggested that uh, Russia, you know, like, you know, that, you know, Ukrainians may consider giving up some of the lands to appease Putin and to, uh, and to give him, you know, an opportunity to save face. And I, my point was that Burgundy, I'm sure it's beautiful in August. And if, 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 uh, if France went to give up some of the Burgundy, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, Russians would appreciate the wine and, uh, you know, etc. I have so my that point one right is, in front of me. My advice to Mr. Macron, if you want to save Putin from humiliation, you wrote, I have heard that Burgundy is nice in August. Though Russians prefer potato vodka to French wine, they'll adapt, and you can benefit from learning to say, I surrender in Russian. Well that's put. Exactly right. Well, no, that's exactly right. And um, so let me let me tell you what I think about the war today. And I'm going to, so and I, I want to preface it that this is, I'm not an unbiased observer. So there is plenty of bias. And I, uh, so I'm going to try to be as unbiased as I can. So on the positive side, I think Ukrainians have a will to fight. Uh, I think the world now, like especially what happened, I don't know if you saw, uh, just, just recently, Putin came out and said that their objective is 
to change again they reinstated the objective to change the government in ukraine and for basically you know ukraine to go to russia so this actually makes easier for nato in europe to uh continue to support ukraine so that's so i think the support may last you know may, may last a while um i think from a support from the united states will probably going to be would last longer than it will come from the rest of Europe. And I say the rest of Europe, I'm talking about Germany and France, because those are the countries, especially Germany, is the one who is actually, it's hurting the most economically because they're tied to Russian gas. Now, and I think the weapons, um, the, the problem is the, what's happening in the war is, that, and again, I'm, I'm a money manager, I'm not a weapons expert or military expert, but this is, this is how I understand this. Um, Ukrainian army was, completely overpowered by Russian army. We get this. Uh, but Russian army being also sclerotic, uh, there was a lot of, you know, the uh, most of the equipment was stolen, etc. all these different things. Um, so, and also Russian soldiers did not really have a will to fight because the, what are they fighting for exactly? They don't know and they don't want to die. So at the same time, Ukrainians have something to fight for, but Ukrainians are basically running out of Soviet-made weapons. So what's happening is that the amount of Soviet-made weapons declining and the uh, weapons from the West, first of all, the West was paying a lot of lip service and was not supplying weapons as fast. But there is another issue here, is that Ukrainians have to be retrained to use those weapons because we're not talking about different rifles we're talking about the most sophisticated systems that are you know very different so it takes time to you know to train ukrainians to use those systems and so giving them weapons that they can't really use it's you know it's a waste of money and resources so i think we are getting to the point where ukrainians now getting these weapons as i understand there's 10,000 ukrainians are trained outside of ukraine how to use more sophisticated you know, weapon weaponry. So I think over time, you're going to see Ukraine becoming strong, like a very strong army. At the same time, Russia was already using uh, tanks from from the Soviet era, from like from 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think they're basically running out of uh, uh, running out of uh, uh, equipment. Now, Oh, in addition, in addition to that, sanctions actually, in general, like I think the impact of sanctions on the country usually very delayed. It takes a long time for the sanctions to happen. But I think the impact of sanctions on a Russian a Russian army, uh, Russia's ability to rebuild the army very quickly, uh, at least weaponry, is diminished tremendously because they need to have like especially modern weapons. They require a lot more semiconductors, etc. And as I understand. Even a lot of the tanks, they need to get the right steel from other Western European countries. So the right, so the 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 York, uh, Ukrainians have this advantage: is that in, you know I think they 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 probably gonna be better armed. Where our, when when the Russian arsenal of uh, is declining, and again I'm I'm a very biased observer, so I'm. I'm not sure how much of what I just told you is a wishful thinking, but this is how this is how I'm thinking about it right now. Um, what I'm concerned long term is that the West will, you know, like, you know, we're gonna, you know, like, think about Germany for a second. They, they, you know, this winter is gonna be very difficult for them, for Germany. Uh, 
Also, Germany is industrial powerhouse of Europe, so they need electricity. You can't make BMW cars without electricity. Or and so, you know, so I so there will be a lot of political pressure to end this war as soon as possible. There are two ways to do this: either to help Ukraine as much as you can, to kick out Russia out of the territories, arm Ukraine out, you know, arm arm Ukraine so they can repel future advancements, or or just drag it out. And it's so, or or withdraw the support. I guess you know that's an option as well. So I would argue that most likely going to have increased intensity of support. And also, by the way, they, as I understand, Europe doesn't even have enough, like, you know, like European defense industry and American defense industry has to work very hard to actually make those weapons too. It's not like we have, you know, they have some spare capacity, but not not as much to basically fight one of the, it's the second or third largest army in the world, right? I, I'm not sure if it's a, you know, it's a, how it compares now against Chinese army, but it's a, it's one of the largest armies in the world. So um, that's how I'm thinking about this. Uh, yeah, there's been a tremendous amount of support from the West, especially the U.S. The U.S. was uh, originally uh, didn't have any teeth uh, yeah. until yeah. until I think Zelensky uh, had his famous quote. He says he says I don't need a ride out of here. I need weapons. Uh, ever that's since right. then, the, the U.S. attitude has really turned around. I know even Musk. Uh, has provided them with a uh, a Starlink a Starlink system uh, for yeah. satellite tracking, which helps them uh, with technology wise to deliver weapons. I think it's, it's, it's I think it's I think it's communication system. It's communication. Allows them, okay. Yeah, it's 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 a communication system. And I the, think and the, the U.S. has provided now HIMARS uh, rocket system. Have you heard yeah, of that? So, yeah, so yes. Yeah, so, yeah. So, basically, what's happening is that they, we provide them artillery. Artillery has a, it has its own limitations in the range. This, uh, I think, they will be getting a lot more rocket systems. And I, you know, and I, and that a lot. And Ukrainian strategy was actually kind of interesting. Instead of trying to, they've been because they don't, um, you know, like they are the David and the you know, David Goliath you know, war, right? So they are acting as David. So what they're doing, they're blowing up warehouses that store supplies store weapons etc and trying to cut off weaponry uh coming to russia because they still have very you know they have i think uh only nine high mars system or something so it's a it's still very limited number you know just think about it say you only have nine this you know this complex systems hopefully they're gonna get a lot more and i think they will I wanted to ask you about ukraine in terms of uh they're a huge supplier of fertilizer to yeah. the world economy, are they not? And I've heard no. some some people uh, theorizing that that's going to accentuate the food shortage uh, worldwide, especially in the U.S. here. So actually, Ukraine actually the Ukraine and Russia are the largest suppliers of wheat. However, Belarus and Russia are the largest supplier of potash. So there are two basically two main fertilizers: uh, potassium, which is made out of potash. So again, the Canada is the largest, and then uh, Russia and Belarus are uh, second and third largest, which basically about the same supply as size as uh, Canada. Um, and then um, so, and then the second uh, 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 second fertilizer is nitrogen, and nitrogen is basically made out of natural gas. So natural gas prices are through the roof for obvious reasons because Russia is the largest supplier to, to Europe, and at the same time, 
the Russia, you know, uh, Russia is not exporting potassium, and Belarusian uh, potassium probably is interrupted as well. So the fertilizer prices went up a lot. They declined since a little bit, but we most likely, if you are a farmer, and you're either going to start ration fertilizer so you have a lower output, or you're just going to have to raise your prices. And so we're probably going to see the food inflation most likely still ahead of us. And that's the, you know, that's a big threat to poorer nations and to poor people in wealthy countries. What do you think the chances are of Russia stopping their aggression, coming to some kind of a agreement with Ukraine? So I think Ukraine at this point in time is not willing to give up its territories mm -hmm. because they see what happens to their people. Right. Um, so I think the only way this war happens is that if Ukraine pushes pushes Russia out of its territories, mm -hmm. or Russia, and I'm not sure, like, I'm not even sure what probability to put on this, you know, basically starts using nuclear weapons. Like, it's just like, I, you know, I, and I, you know, that's, I think the, you know, the only way, like the, the more likely outcome, I think, is that Ukraine pushes out Russia. And that's, that's, to me, that's kind of the base case scenario right now. They just had a summit somewhere in Turkey or something, I forget, some, some kind of summit. And you saw this table that is the size of a hockey arena. Mm -hmm. And every single person, there was four people at this table, a different, uh, a different side of it. Uh, and so this is the behavior of a person who is, uh, has a, who wants to, who wants to leave. You know, he wants to be living, you know, this is not a person who says, I'm, I don't care if I die. That would be behavior of a crazy person to, to me. He wants to make himself a legendary icon. He wants to be the next Peter the Great or the next Absolutely. or the next Stalin. And apparently he has a hero worship thing going there for Stalin. And oh, actually he's trying to convince great. how many Russians that Stalin was a great man. Oh my god. So this is this is a yeah. So the uh, there's a uh, this is this this is a little bit complex, but there's this uh, Ukrainian Ukra some Ukrainians, not all of them hold this guy, uh, Stepan Bandera, as their national hero. Just to be clear, Stepan Bandera was not a good person. You know, and uh, and he, you know, and uh, so there's no question in my mind, but the Ukrainians look at him as a person who cared about Ukrainian independence. And a lot of times, you this, a lot of times if you look at, you know, somebody, it's somebody's heroes, you know, um, so it's a, it's a, it's a complex situation. So Politics and war make for strange bedfellows. Yeah, yeah. From our perspective, you know, from if you're if you were if you're if you're Jewish or Pole, you can't see how you know you can't imagine how Stepan Bandera was a good person, and I and I completely get it being Jewish. Now, but at the same time, I can see how a country that's been beat up by its neighbors for 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 centuries, uh, when it has a leader who basically wants independent. Ukraine could become its hero. Okay, just that's the premise. Now, a, a Russians call like Russians are devastated. Like they are appalled by the fact that U Ukrainians could have uh, Stepan Bandera as their hero. And and I was talking to them, and I say, well, I, okay, I understand this. Like I get, I I understand where you're coming from. He killed hundred thousand people. Uh, there's, I'm not sure he killed hundred thousand people. And for a while, he was a Nazi. Yeah. Yes. And, and by the way, when he was for Nazis, let me just clarify this. Um, in 
we look at Nazis today, uh, with all the knowledge we have today, as this incredibly horrible people, and for the right reasons. Don't get me wrong. However, in if you were if you lived in 1939 in Poland, and there are Nazis coming your way, that's not how you would you would have perceived Nazis. Right. And here's why, because during World, you know, there was Sam Zell has a wonderful biography where he describes how his family did not want to leave, Jewish family did not want to leave Poland because they said, well, the first time, you know, like in, in 19, during the First World War, I don't know, 1916, 17, whatever that was, uh, when they came to Poland, they were very kind and cautious. They were, they were gentlemen. So that was how people yes. looked. And also, and, and they were and, fighting socialism back then. Yes, and this is a this very important point. The Ukrainians looked at Soviets as an enemy, and they, there was and there was a good reason for that, because the in 1930s, a quarter of the country uh, died from hunger, which went went into history from a great Holodomor. famine. Yeah, great famine. Yeah, and uh, and so therefore, the, when the enemy is my enemy is my friend. Well, not like the Germans. You know, were supposed to kick out Russia, you know, Soviets. So that's why the you know, the Bandera, you know, uh, was friends with Germans. By the way, when Germany come, uh, when Germans came to uh, to to Ukraine, seven days later, they wanted Bandera. You know, uh, Bandera thought that they would uh, make Ukraine independent, and they didn't. And he spoke against it, and he basically spent the whole year, the whole war, World War II, in jail. Anyway, again, I'm not here to defend Bandera, but here's the point I want to make. Stalin basically killed tens of millions of Russians. Yes. Soviets. I, I shouldn't say it's just Russians, but you know, people in the Soviet Union through uh, through his through his regime, right? And and Russians' losses, I would argue, also during World War II would have been a lot smaller if he did not beheaded the you know the the Russian army, right? And yes. you know. So today, however, um, you can't say anything negative about World War II. You, you could, so in other words, this, they have laws now in Russia where you can't criticize behavior of Russian army during World War II, and therefore you can't say anything negative about Stalin. And they're erecting uh, statues to Stalin all over Russia. So when I kind of debate like I debated with my Russian classmates who you know who are completely brainwashed, who was telling me about Nazis in Ukraine, and who was telling me how Bandera they have a square you know named after Bandera, etc. I said, listen, like it's very like uh, when you look at so I get I, I understand where you're coming from. However, aren't you the people like aren't you the people who are basically you know praising Stalin as a national hero? Well, in my the response I get, they say, "Well, he was a complex person." I said, "Well, there was nothing really complex about it. He <laughs> killed he killed twenty million people." Ah, uh, yep. And and uh, so anyway, so that's yeah, he was complex. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's amazing what they're being taught to think over there. Yeah. You must be sometimes frustrated when you do get in conversations. Here are people you know, people you went to school with, people yeah. who were. Um, very close to you in one way or another, and yet now their their minds are just uh, turned around. So you know, like you and I in the previous segment in the previous show, you and I talk about my book Soul in a Game. Yes. And there is a concept 
that I learned from Stoic philosophers is reframing. So when I talk to my uh, Russian uh, friends, uh, I don't try to change their mind anymore. Yeah. Not at all. Mm -hmm. What I do, I try to learn of how they think. Yeah. Not necessarily, like, I just want to understand how they approach, like, how they approach this. Because I realize it's like, uh, there was this great, uh, well, <laughs> I'm not sure it was great, but there was this show called uh, Walking Dead. And I remember there was, a, there was this, uh, there, there was this scene I remember in the show where there was a zombie walking the street and the husband recognized that this zombie is his wife. And he runs to her and she still looks like his wife. And he's talking to her, trying to get through to her. And wife is just trying to kill him because the wife is gone. Yeah. It's just the it's just the body that's left. Like a lot of these people, like when I talk to my friends, to my uh, like you know, to my classmates that I you know went to middle school with, it's like like whenever it comes to the subject of this war, suddenly these people turn into zombies. It's the it's like we live in a completely different world. They have a very different reality. Vitaly, where can people go to find your articles and subscribe to your newsletter and to get your books? That's great. So I'll give you a few options. Number one, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably like to listen a little bit more than you like to read. So we have a kind of a we have a podcast where people are basically a professional narrator reads you my articles. And you can find it on investor.fm or if you just look for the Intellectual Investor Podcast. If you want to subscribe to my articles uh, where I talk about investing, life, classical music, and the war, I guess, as well, um, you can go to contrarianedge.com. And finally, you know, I have a new book out, uh, Soul in the Game. And you can actually, if you buy the book and you go to soulinthegame.net, um, there will be instructions for you to get five free new chapters that I wrote since the book uh, went to print. And I'll be writing more, so you, you know, you'll be getting more uh, Soul in the Game content over time. So, Well, Vitaly, thank you very much for both interviews today. First, we did Soul in the Game, and I know your listeners have probably already heard that by the time you're hearing this one. And also thanks for your, your opinions and your knowledge shared on the situation in Ukraine. We appreciate it very much. I know our listeners will enjoy it. And thank you so much for the time you've given us today. I know you're a busy man, and you've been very, very generous with your time. Thank you. John, thank you very much. I really appreciate it.